Merry Christmas, everybody at the Compass Church. So, so glad to be with you all, particularly all of the guests that are here who are wondering, does the pastor ride out like that every week? <laughs> I do now. <laughs> Long overdue upgrade in the pastoral seating, huh? You know, there, some of you grew up in a church where the pastor had a chair on the stage that was like a throne, right? Those were the days, man. I missed out. Huh? You, you may wonder, why, why, Jeff, do you have a throne? Why are you sitting on a throne? That's a really good question. And the answer is Christmas. Christmas and thrones? Yeah, baby. Folks, at the very core of what Christmas is all about is it's the re- arrival of a king. Do you realize that? You know, we just heard sung in that beautiful song, Behold your King! Behold Messiah! Yeah, the king is Jesus. And Jesus, he's so many things, but at the core of his identity, he is the king of kings. Uh, the, The Magi said, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? But he's more than just the king of the Jews. He is the king of all people who call themselves Christians. And that's a that's a challenging thing. You know, we Americans, maybe, we don't take to kings. We don't take to authority, for that matter. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. And yet, if you celebrate Christmas, really, you're celebrating someone who's come to take over your life. When I, when I say that, it's not hypothetical. It's not like, oh, yeah, Jesus is my Lord. I'm not sure what that means, but I'll say it. No, no. Really, he wants to take over every aspect of your life. If you're unaware, uh, let me just tell you, he's going to speak into lifestyle decisions like how you handle relationships and money and how you handle your time. He'll dictate how far your vocabulary can go, how you should steward your sex life. Jesus speaks into everything. He'll get into directional things in your life about what you should choose. Like for myself, for example, some of you know that I, in college, studied for four years as a biology major, planning on being a doctor and Wouldn't you know, King Jesus showed up in my senior year and made it so undeniably evident that God was calling me to be a pastor. (laughs) All all of my friends and family said, Pastor? Eh, I'm not seeing it, Jeff. You know, no, no encouragement there. But I knew. Doesn't matter what they see, Jesus wants me to do this. My wife and I uh, were led by Jesus to adopt two kids. Adoption freaked us out, and yet we knew the, the king is speaking. Do it. Two and a half years ago, I was a pastor of a church for 20 years that I had co-founded. I thought I was going to spend my whole life there, and all of a sudden, King Jesus starts speaking undeniably in my heart, saying, Jeff, I got a bunch of crazies down in Naperville, and I want you to join them. Jesus will mess with every arena of your life. And so next time before you say, Merry Christmas, think about what you're celebrating. The arrival of an authority come to take over your life. And just so you don't think that it's all big, life-altering decisions, sometimes it's just little decisions every day, like how you kids treat your parents and how parents 
treat kids and spouses, treat each other and how you treat your neighbors. Last week, my, my wife, why God made us different, I don't know. But as I'm getting so tired in the evening, Jen is just, woo, 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 woo. She's getting excited and she goes, I'm going to go grocery shopping. I'm like, at night? Well, she went and she wasn't back by my bedtime. So I said, well, forget it. I'm going to sleep. Uh, it's hard to remember this, but last week it was freezing. You know, we've had some mild days here that may put those memories out of your head. But, man, it was freezing. And one of the things I love to do do on these just bitter cold nights is crawl into bed. To crawl in and pull those comforters up. I have my little lamp on and my little book. And I'm just, oh, so cozy. And I'm kind of reading and drifting and reading and drifting. I mean, just bliss. And then my wife barges into the bedroom with her coat and hat on. And she's like, Oh, forget it. And she turns and starts walking on. And I said, what? She said, well, I was going to ask you to help me bring the groceries in from the car. We have an old house with a detached garage, so you have to fight through the elements. And she said, but you're in bed, so forget it. I saw her reasoning. It was real clear. I'm going to forget it. She's right. I'm in bed. I should forget it. I got PJs on, man. And King Jesus shows up again, you know, in moments like this. Unmistakably, I'm hearing him in my mind. I'm remembering his teaching on being a servant and putting others before yourself. And in a moment's time, I know what he wants me to do. No, Lord, you don't. And he's like, get out of bed, kid. So I got out of bed, and I put on my clothes and my hat and my hat, and I walked out into the wintry tundra and helped my wife unload the groceries. So Merry Christmas, sir! Are you sure you're ready for Jesus to be the king of your life? Again, authority is something we really struggle with, and so I want to provide a simple verse that I hope is really going to help you embrace the kingship of Jesus Christ in your life. A simple verse, when I read it at first, you're going to say, I'm not seeing much help here, Jeff, but you will. Ready? Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. First verse about the nativity, the, the birth story of Jesus Christ. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the time of King Herod. Yeah, that's it. Aren't you blessed? You, you say, I don't get it. Why is that so significant? What's, what's up with that? Well, apparently, the Lord really wants us to understand that Jesus was born during that 33-year window that Herod the Great ruled as king of Israel. It's really ironic because Herod the Great was the most evil, wicked, despicable tyrant in Israel's multi-thousand-year history. Isn't that ironic that the most famous king, that's Jesus, the most famous king was born during the reign of the most infamous king? And I think that that matters. I think the Lord in this verse is inviting us to compare kings. I think it's not coincidental that Jesus was born during Herod's reign because the Lord knew we were going to struggle with the arrival of a king. And so he said, let me just put him next to another king to help you realize how different King Jesus is. And so let's talk about Herod, shall we? 
King Herod, oh my. I didn't know how uh, popular or immense this guy's reign was until I went to Israel. When I've been there a number of times, and when you go to Israel, if you go to Israel, one of the things the guide will tell you is everywhere you look in that land, there are ancient remains, and they're all Herodian. Herodian means built by Herod during his reign. Herod was a crazy builder, the greatest builder of the ancient world. When, when the Roman Caesar picked him to be in charge of the land of Judea or Israel, his number one objective was construction. And as I went through Israel today, I mean, I see a beautiful harbor on the Mediterranean Sea. Guide says, oh, that's Herodian. I go to the Temple Mount, the Wailing Wall where the Jews pray. Oh, yeah, that's Herodian. I see military palaces and fortresses. That's Herodian. I see sports arenas, Herodian. Uh, arts theaters, libraries, Herodian, Herodian, Herodian. The guy built everything. And I wish I could tell you and show you all that he had built, but we don't have time. So I want to tell you about one of his 11 palaces. He had 11, of course. Why not, right? But this one, I think he loved it the most because he named it after himself. It's called the Herodian. All right, take a look at our screen. Uh, it looks to me kind of like a volcano. That's what I saw when I came and approached. Uh, though it looks like that in the ancient days, you would have seen this huge palace perched on top of this 400-foot mountain. Let's move to the next slide where we're kind of looking down onto the cone of this mountain. And sure enough, you see the lower levels of this palace. Some of the levels were actually in the mountain while some built above. Zooming even closer, you can begin to see what it looks like today with the pillars and the windows and the rooms and the stairs. Uh, Here's just a glimpse of a ceiling in one of the uh, rooms. Still today, this stone-domed ceiling. Do you have stone-domed ceilings in your house? Probably not. And that's what you need if it's going to last 2,000 years. Herod built a palace. It's just unbelievable. Here's, here's an artist's recreation of what it would have looked like back in the day. Uh, as you can tell, there's a cutaway here. And so again, some of it in the mountain, some of it with glorious towers and walls that are filled with rooms. It was spectacular. Here's a glimpse inside the throne room. Again, a recreation of what it would have looked like in Herod's day. Uh, we actually were guided into the bathroom, which I thought was a little creepy, but then I found out, no, no, this is the hot sauna bathhouse. Nice. High tech with hot water flowing under the floor to create a steamy environment. And then I walked into the next room and the guide, or the guide said, this is the warm bathhouse. And we walked into the third. What do you think? Yes, the cold bathhouse. I mean, luxury like I have never seen. What next picture? This is uh, going back to the mountain. And there's something I didn't tell you and I need to let you know. This 400-foot mountain, it's man-made. Before Herod got here, it was entirely flat. And what happened was Herod loved this location. He said, I want to build one of my palaces there, but I want it on a mountain. Minions, build me a mountain, he said. And so thousands of workers for decades with buckets of dirt built him a mountain. Herod would spare no expense 
to give his little life the, the greatest luxuries the world could imagine. You say, how did he afford it all? <laughs> That's a good question. He taxed his people ruthlessly. Herod taxed the Jewish people at 80 to 90% of their income went into his pockets for his projects. Can you imagine that? Within a couple decades, he diminished the entire nation into abject poverty with ruthless taxation. What a guy. He became the richest man of the ancient world while his people became impoverished. Next slide. This, you see the Herodian here, at the base, he built, and it's difficult to gain the size of what you're looking at, but this, yes, is a swimming pool, the size of a football field. Uh, ancient historians outside of the Bible tell us that Herod had boats in his swimming pool and that his servants would row him around his lake-like pool as he ate grapes and sipped pina coladas. I don't know what it was. Yes, this is an island that he would come out to. Hey, since we're on the swimming pool, let me tell you, one day he invited the high priest over for a swim. Everybody loved this high priest, so much so that Herod was jealous. So you know what he did? He told his guards, drowned the high priest while he's swimming in my pool. And they did. Herod killed people recreationally. When he was chosen to become the king of Judea by the emperor of Rome, some of the soldiers started voicing that they weren't delighted with the choice. And on that first day when he was made king, he killed 400 of the top military leaders just to make sure everybody knew he wouldn't take anyone bucking his authority. There were some members of the Supreme Court who voiced concern. Herod was not a Jew by heritage, and that bothered them. They should be ruled by a Jew, and they stated that. On that day, Herod killed 47 members of the Supreme Court. He killed his father-in-law. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his favorite wife, who at the time of his, her death wasn't his favorite anymore. He killed his two sons. He killed anybody and everybody who got in his way or who wouldn't submit to his kingship. Next picture. This is a, on the side of the Herodian, is the remains of an ancient mausoleum that was actually the burial place of Herod himself. He wanted to be buried at the palace named after him. Herod was very paranoid about his death. You know why? Because he knew all of his subjects would rejoice when they heard word that he had died, and that bugged him. So we put a plan in motion. Herod, as he was growing so weak and struggling to breathe, and when he knew the end was near, he ordered 300 of the most beloved politicians and leaders in all of Israel. He ordered them to gather in the Hippodrome, which is this big sports arena that he built. Well, they locked the doors, and for days they waited, wondering what's going on. Herod had given the instructions that when I die and take my last breath, I want you to slaughter all 300 to guarantee there will be weeping in the land on the day I die. The man was a monster. 
No wonder we struggle with authority because there's too many leaders out there that are like King Herod. I mean, that's oh, ugly. One, one more detail. I didn't tell you where the Herodian was built. Herod identified this spot right outside this quaint little town called Bethlehem. Jesus Christ, King of Kings, was born in the shadow of the Herodian. Isn't the irony just amazing? In fact, let me show you an oil painting. I stumbled upon this, and this painter obviously understood the historical dynamic surrounding this event. What we see here is a house built over a cave, and ancient non-biblical historical evidence suggests that Jesus was born in a cave. That makes sense, because in those days, the Lots of caves, and the people kept animals in a cave. We know Jesus was placed in a manger, an animal trough. And so we can imagine Jesus being born here, and what's right next by? There's the Herodian. The, the, the thought of it, the Jesus, the king of all kings, God in human flesh, maker of the universe, came into the world, and he was placed in a manger, I mean, an animal trough with slop in it. You can't think of a more disgusting container in all the world. And that was his crib. While a stone's throw away, another king was floating in his lake-like pool eating grapes. And you're like, what's up? Lord, you really messed up, Lord. You know, when your son came to planet Earth, you failed to make hotel reservations for him, you know? This is no failure on God's part. God designed his son, God, the second person of the Trinity, to be placed in a manger. Why? Because he was sending a message to them, to us. You know King Herod, right over there? This king is the exact opposite. This is the king of another kind. And I have sent him in Herod's lifetime. I have sent him to the spot of Herod's greatest palace to set up a contrast that will help you realize the heart of this king, this king, Jesus. Jesus is a humble king, a down-to-earth, grassroots sort of king, one we should get enthused about following. Let's do this. Let's spend a little time contrasting King Herod. Now, you know something about King Herod, so you'll be able to recognize his difference. Let's contrast him to King Jesus. And I want to bring out three different observations, three different contrasts. The first characteristic of King Jesus is this. He was and is loving. Jesus Christ burns with love for the people he leads. Who does Herod love? Himself, that's right. So let's do this. As we make the contrast, let's let this throne remind us of Herod, and let's let this manger, the manger throne, remind us of this king of a very different type. And the first is that Jesus was driven by love for his people. The Bible is filled with descriptions of Christ's immense compassion for people. 
The folks were just mesmerized. They had never seen love like this before. I mean, the, the, the lepers, those diseased people everyone fled from, Jesus walked right up to them, talked to them, touched them, embraced them. The little children who uh, the disciples thought Jesus was too important for. Jesus says, no, let him come to me. And they ran to him and he held them and he prayed for them and he blessed them. Jesus Christ, more than any human being, was known for a a tender affection for his subjects that is just mind-blowing. So know this. King Jesus knows your name. More than that, he knows you better than any other being in the universe. And he absolutely adores you. Adores you. And his leadership, if you'll allow him to be king of your life, will be driven by love. Unlike Herod, who only loved himself, King Jesus adores you. So there's one. Jesus is loving. The second one is that Jesus, his, his goal was giving. <laughs> Herod, his goal was getting, right? Herod just said, I want to tax people and make them bow and serve me. And Herod was all about maximizing his own benefit and gain. Jesus lived to give. Jesus was a a very unique king in this. Most kings are like, serve me. Jesus says, I have come to bless you. Let me read to you a very interesting verse. This is uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Jesus speaking, he said, I did not come to be served. Herod had been like, what are you talking about? That's the essence of being a king is to be served. Jesus said, no, no, no. I did not come to be served. I came to serve and to give my whole life as a ransom for many. What is Christ speaking of when he talks about giving his life as a ransom for many? That's a reference to the cross. And the cross of Jesus Christ is a demonstration of the unique type of kingship he came to bring. Jesus looked at his people and he says, I want to rescue them. They're in trouble. They're sinners. They've done things against God's will and they have no capacity to right their wrongs. Jesus knew that justice demand that the right penalty be paid. And so Jesus Christ said, I will suffer capital punishment on humanity's behalf. And he took the sins of the whole world on his shoulders and he went to the cross to die on our behalf so we could be forgiven and find life eternal. This king is all about, he's not saying, hey, you, serve me. He is saying, I live to give and bless and make your life forgiven and eternal and beautiful. Christ said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. So Herod lived to get. Jesus lived to give one more. And that is how Jesus built more followers or recruited more followers. He simply invited people. He would say, follow me. If you're interested, if you're willing, come, follow me. Now, what did Herod do? He forced. (laughs) He put a knife to your neck and he said, you bow and submit or I'll kill you. And Jesus would have none of it. He was a respecter of the will of people and said, listen, the choice is yours and I will honor 
what you choose. And still today, Jesus says, will you follow me? You know, a a verse that reminds me of that is found in Matthew uh, chapter 23. This is towards the end of Jesus' ministry. He's looking over Jerusalem. He's weeping because he sees so many hurting people who have not responded to his invitation. And let me read what Jesus says. He said, how I have longed to gather you people to myself like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. This imagery of the hen and chicks, it's another expression of his love. This tender embrace. Jesus says, I just want to scoop you people up and hold you close to my heart. But look at this last phrase. Jesus says with tears, but you were not willing. Folks, Jesus isn't going to force anyone. Herod would. King Jesus won't. He gives the invitation, and he waits for us to choose. He is a king of an altogether different type. And when you find a king like Jesus, you know what the right thing to do is? To say, I'm going to follow him, man. Following him is the privilege of a lifetime. It's the one time we can enthusiastically embrace someone having authority in our lives. I have a comparison I want to share with you, and I know you poor White Sox fans are going to barf when you hear me share another Cub story, but it is the year, and I think God's led me to this, so don't argue with the Lord. All right, here we go. Let's put up this picture. This is Ben Zobris, right after the Cubs win the seventh game and win the World Series, wrapping his arms around Joe Madden, the general manager of the Cubs. And these two go way back. Uh, They were coach and player from Ben's very first game in the major leagues. For seven years, they played together or worked together down in Tampa Bay for the Tampa Bay Rays. And Ben Zobris said, Joe Madden made me the ball player that I am today. Well, loved working with this guy. Only coach in the major leagues that he had. And then two years ago, the Cubs steal uh, Joe Madden from the Tampa Bay Rays. And Ben Zobrist is brokenhearted to be separated from this great coach and mentor. But little did he know that Joe Madden was working, uh, you know, to make a trade to get Ben back on his team. And this year, Ben Zobrist came back or came to the Cubs and Do you know he's the MVP of the World Series? He was the one who made that hit that won the game in the 10th inning that broke the 108-year curse. This guy, wow, wow. When Ben Zobris found out that he was being traded to the Cubs and was going to be playing for Joe Madden again, he was elated. You say, wait a minute. The guy was excited to have an authority in his life? He knew that the right, authority, the right authority made him the best player possible. Uh, and folks, we should have that attitude. When we find Jesus, yes, he's going to rule every corner of our lives, but he's worthy of that role. Let me read you a quote by Ben Zobris, speaking of his boss, his manager, Joe Madden. He says, Joe has a way of putting you in situations you're not comfortable with. And he's done that with Ben Zobris. You know, may know Ben Zobris is a utility player, meaning that Joe Madden has demanded him to play all kinds of outfield and infield positions. I think he's played them all, but pitcher and catcher. He says, at first, you're like, 
I don't want to do that. But later on, when you see the benefit to yourself and your team, you understand his leadership ability. And I thought to myself, that's like with God. Let's be frank. There are times when God will call you to do things, and you're like, no, I don't want to get out of bed. It's cold outside, you know. But the Lord knows what's best. And inevitably, in the end, you'll say, oh, I see your leadership genius again. This is what's best for me. It's what's best for your team. Nobody in the long run regrets the decision to follow Jesus Christ as their king. Now, Ben Zobris is not only brilliant at picking baseball leaders, he's brilliant at picking life leaders. In other words, Ben Zobrist is a Christian. Jesus Christ is his king. And that all happened uh, right here in Chicagoland. Ben was attending Olivet Nazarene University. And though he had committed to Jesus as a kid, at least asking Jesus to be the forgiver of his sins... He had never really surrendered control of his life to King Jesus. And it was during those college years that he met some fellow students at Olivet, and he was inspired to do it. And with great conviction, he said, I bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Lord, you take my life. You write my story. You just say the word, and I will obey. From now for the rest of eternity... You are the supreme leader of my life. And the Lord took him up on it and started to lead, led him to his wife, something he'll never stop thanking God for, and then started leading his career very unexpectedly. Ben Zobrist had no intentions of playing baseball in college. When he played his last high school baseball game, he thought, that's it, I'm done with the sport. He didn't think he was good enough to go any further. But the coach persuaded him to try out for the team, He made the team. He did pretty well. Started to do really well. And eventually he was drafted by the Tampa Bay Rays. And it was upon being drafted into the major leagues that he said this quote. Let me put another quote up here. He he couldn't believe that he was a major league ball player. And he said, it was like God was saying, if you commit to follow me where I want you to go, Ben, I will do things that you don't even think are possible. He said this nine years ago when he was drafted. Little did he know that God was going to use him to... Did you say, God? Yeah, God's a Cub fan. God was going to use him to break the 108-year curse. Now, you say, are you telling me, Jeff, that if I surrender to the kingship of Jesus Christ, I'll get to be in the Cubs and break a 108-year curse? No, that's already been done. You will get to live the story Jesus has planned for you. And it's beautiful. It's born out of his love. It's born out of his giving heart. I'm saying this, that the life it won't be easy. There will be difficulties and struggles along the way. But Christ will write your story to make it beautiful for you and for his team. You will see him build character in you and make you strong in areas that you aren't strong today. 
You will see him use you to impact others and impact eternity in ways that you never thought possible. You will see him use you to love and serve others and build relationships that are more beautiful than anything you've tasted before. Nobody who surrenders to the kingship of Jesus Christ regrets it in the long run. They view it as the smartest decision in all their lives. Why? Because of the nature of the king. If he was like Herod, forget it. But he is a king of an altogether different kind. And the king is present here tonight, this afternoon. And he's asking the same question. He's like, all right, you say Merry Christmas? Can Jesus says, can I remind you? I came to rule. Whereas the one who has been born king. He says, I've come to take over the world and take over your life. And so the question Jesus has for you is, will you let him be king of your life? And as I close in prayer, this is a chance for you silently to say yes or no to that question. Some of you, with all integrity, just have to say no. I'm not ready to surrender control of my life to Jesus Christ. And though I am saddened by that, I respect your self-awareness, and I pray you get to a place that you can say yes soon. But there are many of us who say, yes, yes, Jesus, write my story. Take my life. Lord, when I fail to follow you and fall down, I'll get up, ask for your forgiveness, and start following you again. Because I want you to be my king. So ready? I'm going to pray. And in the quietness of your heart, Jesus is asking, yes or no, can I be your king? You ready? Jesus, we, we sense you and recognize your presence in this place. And we say Merry Christmas, Jesus Christ. We know why you came. Not to start a nice little holiday. Not for presents and parties. You came to rule, Christ. And I'll just say for myself, Jesus, you are and will always be King of Jeff Griffin. And Lord, many of us right now say yes. Hear us. Say yes. Be our king. We want you to be our savior, our forgiver. Apply what you did on the cross to wash away all our sin, but don't just be our forgiver. Also be our leader from here on out. Let's go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.